Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Musician's Venture Podcast. I'm your host, Nick O'Brien. This episode features a conversation with 1913, a Milwaukee-based band built on the unique duo of cellist Janet Schiff and percussionist Victor DiLorenzo, who was the founding drummer for Violent Femmes, a notable Milwaukee band that quickly rose to widespread fame in the 1980s. Together, Janet and Victor create music that suggests mystery, romance, and future thought. Powered by cello layers and beat brush percussion, 1913 is an award-winning duo that defies expectations and rewards listeners with their unique expression of music. The band often hears that their music conjures up images in their listeners' heads. The band has been featured on PBS, NPR, and MSNBC, as well as many national publications such as Modern Drummer Magazine. 1913 has performed at BMO Harris Pavilion, Milwaukee Art Museum, Lakefront Festival of the Arts, Summerfest, the Pabst Theater, the Fister Hotel, Turner Hall Ballroom, Sharon Lynn Wilson Center for the Arts, and many more stages. Over the course of the conversation, the three of us talk about their focus being on writing and recording right now, with plans for an 11th studio release coming out this year. They share that their music is being considered for use in an independent film, and their desire to work with more directors and producers for film and TV. They both reflect on how they got into making music, with Janet explaining her fascination with the cello early in her life, and Victor reflecting on how music wasn't actually his first love in the realm of performing, it was actually acting. Victor explains the story of how Violent Femmes came together, and the band's rise to fame. Both of them tell the story of how they initially met, which slowly but surely led to them creating the current iteration of 1913. We talk about the dynamic between their respective instruments and the chemistry that that dynamic creates in order to produce such a unique and appealing sound. A lot of the band's music is instrumental, but when Victor joined, he wanted to incorporate some lyrics and singing into the music. They talk about that process and how it led to the song that you'll hear at the end of this interview, which is called Hot Garbage. They explain the difficulty of getting gigs because they are such a unique band, whether it be the sound, the cello and drums duo, their setup, or people just not knowing what to expect. Janet talks about her beloved cello and why it was the genesis for the band's name, and then the conversation ends with the two asking listeners to come to their shows with an open mind to allow the opportunity for you to get to know them and their personalities through experiencing their live performance. I hope you enjoy this conversation with 1913. Janet and Victor, thank you so much for sitting down with me and being a guest on the Musician's Venture. 
It's super great to meet you. Thank Welcome you to the uh, the past office. This is my recording studio on the east side. And uh, it's nice to have you here. And I, I know we've been trying to set this up for a while, but now we're here. Yeah, here we are. I know you, you two have, you know, a show coming up with Wisconsin Music Ventures. I saw a couple more shows on the calendar. What is the focus of 1913 right now? What are you working on? Working on composing some new music and recording. And then we'll have a release, hopefully in fall. We might start doing some singles and focus on shorter recordings instead of a full album, just to stay current and and releasing music regularly. And there's also a new venture that we're getting into. We've always described our music as cinematic, and we're hoping to be utilized by a director or producer someday in the making of a film or a television show. And we're just signed up now to work with the independent film that's going to be shot here in Milwaukee this summer called Floodgates. And Janet and I are probably going to be writing maybe a little bit of new music for it, but a lot of our already recorded music is going to be utilized for the soundtrack of the film. So we're looking forward to helping the director put that music into the film. And hopefully that'll lead to maybe us being hired by other directors or producers to work on some kind of either film or television. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. How did that come about? Like, was it just kind of serendipitous or did you guys put yourself out there? Well, we were asked to be a part of it by Dave Lurson. He's one of the writers uh, on the film. And he knows of 1913 because he's interviewed us a few different times for different recordings that we've released or live shows. When it was presented to us, I had said to Janet, wouldn't it be nice if they could use a lot of our already recorded material? So we gave the director a bunch of the music, and he went through and he fell in love with so many different pieces. So I think the majority of the film, sound-wise, music-wise, is going to be utilizing our already existing recordings, which is great for us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Get paid for work you've already done. Right. When the music starts working for us, that's the goal. Yeah, yeah, of course. There you go. You, you make it once, you get paid for it forever. That is the goal. Well, it's, that's exciting. I think that's not necessarily something that a lot of musicians get the chance to experience. You know, like, right. it's one thing to, you know, hear your music online or, you know, on the radio, but to, to hear it in movies, that's, that'd be exciting. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a short film. It's not a full length feature. But just to, to get our foot in the door, so to speak, we're really excited about that. Mm-hmm. And and the film itself, the, the script, is really good. And we know a lot of the people that are involved with it. One of the main actors is Flora Coker, who okay. used to be from you know Theater X and has done work with the Milwaukee Rep and other independent theater companies here in Milwaukee. But I think it's going to be a lot of fun once we start working with the director on how to edit the music to fit the scenes and see how the music maybe represents characters in a certain way. It's fun. I mean, I've worked on films before, and Janet's had a little bit of experience, but this is the first time we're going to really get into the nitty-gritty of it and see how our music can be translated into the world of cinema. We did have that play a few years ago called A Woman's Place. And it was great to watch a live performance to our music. Mm-hmm. All those songs are on the Music for Time Travel CD and recordings. So we want to just keep doing more and more of that. And people have always said that our music conjures images in their heads. So 
it's those ones that are going to be producing those images that we want to work with. Yeah. Those moving images or films, mm -hmm. right? That's very cool. <laughs> wow. Well, you don't start here, right? Like 1913 has been, you know, several years in the making. I think, how, how long has the band been together? This is 13 years. 13 years. 13 yeah. years. Can you believe it? Several years is, is putting it a bit lightly. Yeah. <laughs> but you're both accomplished musicians before this. So I'm always curious to go back to the beginning. And since there are two of you here, listeners, you get two stories for the price of one episode. So let's start with you, Janet. At what point in your life did you feel the draw toward making music and not just consuming it? And what was that experience like? Were there particular influences or inspirations that were associated with that draw to making music? Or just kind of take us through that story. Yep, it's pretty much expected in my family to be a musician. Okay. My mom was a concert pianist. My father played guitar and banjo and sang. They did some work together. And so I was definitely offered and encouraged to make music my whole life and perform, starting with singing with my sisters and then some piano, guitar, and then I invented the cello with that guitar. And so... From that point on, I've just been pretty obsessed with the instrument and have focused on that. I'm taking almost every single opportunity that comes my way, and it's really served me well. Also seeking out opportunities to promote, and I really enjoy the marketing end of the business. But yeah, it was just pretty much expected for me to be a musician with the opportunity that was given to me. I didn't necessarily have a, a private cello teacher until several years after starting the instrument. And before that, I really wanted to play cello for several years. So by the time I have got a dedicated teacher and I was a dedicated student, I was several years into playing already. That said, I lived in a small town and there were no cello teachers but my family was able to get me a cello from Milwaukee, and uh, that broke. Yeah, I definitely broke my first cello way back then <laughs> in the 80s. Yeah, and there was someone who taught band and some orchestra at the high school, so I was able to get into the grade school orchestra a little bit early because everyone knew how much I really wanted to play cello. You know, the music was just and not a requirement, but just more of an expectation. And it continues to this day. 1913 is recorded with my sisters doing some backup vocals and harmonies. And it's just great to also continue with their support. My family still really supports my music career. And they know I never gave up and never will. And music took over a big part of me that was lost at age seven. There was a traumatic loss in my family. And so I think music really did carry me through and still does, as I need music. I need my cello as much as it needs me to make music. Mm. And so I don't even dare to imagine my life without music because it's been such a big part of my life. All those lessons, tons and tons of lessons, I hardly ever practiced in between, but I kept trying. And I learned how to be um, a better student finally in college and ended up with a degree in psychology instead of music. But the career has served me well as a uh, dual career. But uh, the music career has, has served me very well. And being very cello-centric and, like I say, obsessed with the cello, 
I've always tried to get my name in, you know, with publicity in 1913, synonymous with the word cello. Can you explain what the draw or the obsession with the cello is all about? Why that instrument? Well, the best I can think of is seeing Yo-Yo Ma playing cello when I was just a kid. I was watching PBS and I couldn't remember the name cello. And so that's why I ended up with a guitar. My parents bought me a guitar and I turned it into a cello by using a coat hanger as a bow. I put it between my legs like a cello and I taped on a ruler to the bottom of my guitar. And it took a little while, but my mom figured out, oh, I think she wants to play cello and, and not guitar. And I remember getting that guitar and like kind of being excited about the shiny new instrument. It was a classical guitar with the nylon strings and everything. But there was no bow. There was no end pin. You know, the fetishy stuff, the challenge of no frets. The four strings as another limitation, you know, in some way. But for me, it's just been a best friend and has really helped me heal. And I think that big responsibility of a cello, like it's a big instrument, almost as big as me. And I've just been so, so much like an ant carrying that thing on my back. Yeah, I really can't imagine my life any other way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What is your most, like, memorable cello performance? Does one stick out? The Paps Theater. Yeah, that was that was very special. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because both my parents were there, and so they were both still alive, <laughs> for one. But that was ever since I was about that age, inventing the cello, I had always wanted to perform there. So when I finally got to, it was... With Victor, we opened up a show for Rain Wilson, the actor and writer who was on a book tour. And Victor got us that gig. And I can remember he either called or texted me and just, guess what, Janet? You know, so like it's been fun to have some of these dreams come true. You know, I still want Yo Yo Ma to sign my cello with a Sharpie. I don't know if he will, but I've got a Sharpie in my case, in case I run into him, you know, downtown or whatever. But another thing was jazz in the park. You know, that was super special for me. No comment on the 2023 schedule because we're not on it. But, you know, we got to play that last year. And, and even though it was a cold second to last, it was the, the penultimate performance of jazz in the park last year in a cold Thursday evening in September. We had Cathedral Square and Milwaukee really hearing all these cellos and drums. So it was a great show, mm-hmm. right? And I think the first time I ever performed with the looping panel was memorable. And also like, wow, I really need to practice more. So, you know, we've got some other tricks up our sleeves and I'm playing an instrument with my foot too. Yeah. Just that looping pedal. Yeah. You know, so having Victor's amazingly steady beats all these years has been really beneficial to everyone's experience of 1913. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing like the arc of the story. And now, Victor, we get to talk about your story. Oh, boy. Tell us, you know, about the experience of being drawn to making music, I'm guessing as a child. The beauty of dazzling degradation. Huh? Okay, it all starts for me not as a musician. 
Okay. My first interest in show business was because of film. And I remember watching on television, which is still my favorite movie of all time, a sci-fi classic called The Day the Earth Stood Still. Okay. Now, Bernard Herrmann did the soundtrack for that film utilizing the theremin, which is uh, an electronic instrument. And I was fascinated by that sound, and I wanted to know what that sound was. Because up until that point, music for me was just something that was a part of a television show or part of a movie. I didn't care about musicians making music. I was more interested in the realm of acting. That's what I wanted to do, and that's what I first did as a performing person, was be on stage as an actor. Or when I was very young, my introduction to the whole world of show business was my mom got me into print articles in the paper and in magazines. So I would model clothes and stuff like that. Just people, when they're a child, being utilized in the performing sense, it was usually just involved with some kind of a, trying to sell some kind of a product. But anyway, then things took a turn for me because when I was nine years old, my father had a friend who came over and and he was always interested in gadgets, this friend of my father's. So on this particular visit, he brought along a little Aowa tape recorder, which uh, had three-inch reels and a little crystal microphone. And he was showing my dad how it worked. And I was watching, and I was thinking, boy, I would really like to have that. That would be fun to play around with, because then I could record things off the television and then I could hear them later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I wasn't really thinking musically. I just wanted to record. So my father, being the generous fellow that he was, saw my interest and said, okay, Victor, are you interested in that? Should I, should I buy that? And I, I said, yeah, if, if your friend wants to sell it. His friend said, yeah, I have another tape recorder at home, but if he's interested, sure, I could sell this one to you. So we bought this little tape recorder and... I did exactly what I said. I just started recording stuff off the television. And then it progressed to the point where I was just writing little skits. And I would record them by myself or with my cousin who was interested in that. So that was my early interest in the periphery of music, just thinking about recording. When I started to get into music was when I was in grade school. And I was trying to figure out what I wanted to play as an instrument because part of grade school, there was a music class. And mostly it centered on string instruments. So I decided that I was going to play the viola. Okay. So I studied the viola for a while in grade school, and I enjoyed that. But at the same time, it wasn't a driving force in my life. I was still very interested in the idea of becoming an actor. So time went by, and I'm in high school, and I hadn't played the viola for a while. I kind of gave that up. I had taken some piano lessons with an older woman that was nearby where I grew up. And that was okay, but I was still just into this idea of being an actor. But then I was 16 years old, and I get a call from my cousin and he wanted to ask me this question, which was, do you know anybody that wants to buy a drum set? And I said, why? Do you have one to sell? And he goes, well, I don't have one to sell, but my friend is going to Vietnam. That shows how 
hold on. And he wants to sell this drum set to just get some money together before he leaves. And I was working at that time at a Holiday Inn. I was working in the kitchen, washing dishes and bussing tables. So I had a little bit of money to play with. And I figured, wow, a drum set? Okay, I'll help your friend out and I'll, I'll have a drum set. So for $350, I bought this four-piece Slingerland drum set with cymbals. Okay. I mean, pretty good deal for $350. Yeah. And I brought it home, and it sat in my parents' basement for a couple weeks without me ever even touching it. I would come home from school, and I'd look at it, and I'd go, ooh, maybe someday I'll figure out how to set that up. Or maybe I can play it. Maybe I'll play along to records or something. And I finally convinced this friend of mine who, who was a drummer to come over and show me how to set it up. So I set up the drums with him. And then for a while, I would just kind of bang on it, just improvise. And then I started playing along to recordings. And then finally I got serious. And there was a, a great drum teacher in Racine, Wisconsin, where I grew up, named Joe Police. And I started studying with him, and he got me into the artistry of playing the brushes, which is something I'm known for, and also how to read rhythmic notation, and just to appreciate jazz. So he gave me those three gifts, and that started me on my career as a drummer and as a proper, I'd say a proper musician. Then at some point, you cross paths with the other members of the Violent Fabs. Right. Well, even before that, I, I played with a number of different musicians in Racine. And when I wasn't playing drums, I also was in one band where I was the lead singer. So I was coming at music from all different angles. And then I had a friend of mine named Charlie Deming, and we had a band together called Fresh Lettuce. And that's when I started writing original material with him. And he had a four-track reel-to-reel, a TAC. So we started in our minds, seriously recording. And that was just so much fun. And that, that's when I really started to fall in love with the idea of, oh, you can use recording to record music, not just to sample whatever you're hearing in the air. So I fell in love with that whole process of making music. I didn't meet the guys in the Femmes for, for quite a while. I mean, my career as an actor came into focus at that point when I was out of high school because I, I figured... I'm going to go to college someday, but I didn't want to go to Madison like all my other friends were going to Madison, and they were wasting their parents' money because they were just getting stoned and drunk. And I figured when I go, I really want to study. That's what I want to do. So I waited a couple of years, and then I came here to Milwaukee from Racine and enrolled in UWM, and I was studying comparative literature, theater, and music. So I had a, I had a full load there. When I was in the theater department, one day I, I went and I looked at the bulletin board and there was a, a little piece of paper there that said that Theater X was auditioning because they needed two more people to join the company. They were looking for one man and one woman to join the company. So I figured, wow, maybe that might be something I would, I would like to do. So first I went to go see a Theater X production. They were doing a, a show at that time called The Unnamed. And I just fell in love with it. It was very guerrilla theater, very alternative. Some people use that word avant-garde, which I don't know. 
Well, didn't, didn't John Lennon once say that avant-garde was what it really means was it was another word for bullshit. <laughs> so, so I, uh, so I figured I'd join this bullshit and, uh, and I wanted to audition for it. I wasn't just going to join it. I had to audition. So I decided that because I had never done an audition, I should do an audition before I do the audition that I really want. And I knew in Racine that they were holding auditions for the Racine Theater Guild. So I prepared something and I went down there and it turned out that they liked what I did so much that they not only wanted to hire me for this particular play that was coming up, but they wanted me to join the company and be part of everything. And then I had to fess up and say, listen, I'm so sorry, but the only reason I'm doing this audition is because I want to do this other audition. And I figured I should do one before I, I do the one I really want. And they understood, and they said, well, that's pretty smart that you, you figured that, that you should do that, and, and you're probably ahead of the game by doing that. So I remained friends with those people, and I actually did some work with them in the future. But, uh, but I did the audition for Theater X, and I got in. So my position that I took over was a, uh, Willem Dafoe was in the company, and he was getting ready to go to New York. So that's why they needed a man for the company, and also... They wanted to get a woman because they needed another a woman into the company. So I joined Theater X. And while I was in Theater X, I was introduced to Brian Ritchie by a mutual friend who said, Victor, there's this bass player I know that I think you might like, and maybe you guys can do something together. So I met Brian, and we started playing together, and we had this rhythm section that we called Violent Femmes. And this was before we ever met Gordon. So we started playing together just around Milwaukee, backing up different people. There was one person in particular that it was fun to work with this guy. His name was Doorway Dave, and essentially he was an alcoholic with a guitar. And he would play on the streets at night. So Brian and I would join him, and we would go play in different doorways, Doorway Dave. So we'd play in the doorways to have the acoustics be a little bit more in, in control. And then sometimes we get invited just off the street. Hey, someone's having a beer party. Why don't you come over here and play? And okay, all right, so we'll do that. So it's just like a gypsy lifestyle just on the streets of Milwaukee. From there, I got introduced to Gordon because Brian had met him at the old Metropole Theater and said to me, hey, I met this guy. He's like a pint-sized Lou Reed imitator. Maybe we should do some stuff with him. And I said, well, does he write original material? And he goes, yeah, he's got some good songs. So Brian and I went to go see him play, and I said, yeah, Brian, you're right. This guy's really good. We should work with him. So we started working with Gordon, and, and for a while we called ourselves Gordon Gano and Violent Femmes. But then finally people just knew us as Violent Femmes, so we just called ourselves Violent Femmes. We liked playing together, and... At first, it was going to be just something we were going to do for a summer because Brian and I were thinking of moving up to Minneapolis to play with some friends of mine up there. But then things started really happening for the Femmes, so then I stayed here and we started working on what eventually became a career. At what point did you start to realize that, oh, I got to do this instead of acting? Well, I, st I still did both. Okay. So when I would come home from tour, when I mean, when the Femmes got to that part where we were doing a lot of touring, when I'd come back, if there was a possibility of me joining Theater X for a new show they were working on, then I did that. So I, I tried to keep, you know, juggling the 
both of my my loves at that point. Once you talked about like that critical moment where you had the first album had just come out, but you had just didn't you just have a baby or did yeah you... yeah yeah Mal was just born. Okay. Yeah, that that was a real uh, interesting point in my life where I literally had the new Femmes record in one hand and my newborn son in the other hand, and I'm thinking. Well, my future is pretty well figured out right here. How long were the films doing the gigging thing in and around Milwaukee before things kind of started? Things went really fast for us. So it was only a period of about two years when we decided that we were going to make a record. And then the record got picked up by Slash Records in California pretty fast after the fact when it was finished. We we did shop it a little bit and had a ton of reject oh, of letters, you know, from different <laughs> different record companies. But Anna Statman was this woman who was on A and R duty at Slash Records out in Hollywood, and she really loved the demo tape that we made and also then the record because we sold the record as a finished master. So we didn't make a record for a record company; we made it for ourselves under our own auspices. When they decided to pick up the record because Anna finally convinced Bob Biggs, who was the owner of the label, to pick us up. Things just started to really happen re- really fast. I mean, I I give them a lot of credit. Or, I mean, God bless Anna that she heard what we were hearing when we made the music. Because Bob Biggs, he had to be convinced. But once the record got out there and started getting great reviews, it turned out that for the years after we became associated, with Slash Records, we were a lifeline for Slash. I mean, they had the Blasters, they had Los Lobos, they had the Germs, Rank and File. They had some good music on the label, but for better or for worse, we were the meal ticket for that label. I mean, if it wasn't for us, I don't know how long the label would have lasted because we made a lot of money for them. We were a very popular group on the label. Yeah, and I think I've heard this story from dozens of different sources, but I want to fact check it <laughs> with someone who was there. The story of the Femmes busking on Farwell in or around the Oriental Theater, and there was somebody in town who was touring, and the opener it's got true. sick or dropped off, and you guys were just there. And how, it's, it's true. We did open for the Beatles. Okay. <laughs> no, what happened was, was uh, we were on our normal tour of the east side sure and a couple places where we used to like the bus because the acoustics were good were under the marquees of the downer theater and the oriental theater mm-hmm. so this particular afternoon we were playing underneath the marquee of the oriental theater and to make a long story short chrissy hind and the pretenders were playing there that night they heard us, and they invited us to come and open the show for them. Well, not really open the show, because they had an English band called the Bureau that opened the show. They're a big horn band from, from England. But after they left the stage, the lights go down. Everybody thinks the pretenders are going to come on. Lights come back up, and these three idiots come walking on stage. And you could hear the people in the crowd going, Oh, it's those three idiots that are on the street playing. What are they doing here? <laughs> So so we played three songs, and I'd have to say 
when we started, we had that reaction of, oh, get these guys out of here. But then by the end, I think probably about half the audience really appreciated us because we were doing something different. And they figured, well, if they're playing before the pretenders, there's probably a reason why they're here. And maybe the pretenders like them because nobody knew. Right, right. It was just something that happened that afternoon and then we're playing that night. We you know, told some of our friends about it, but there was no cell phones. There were no internet. Right, right. So the word hadn't really gotten around. So we were this total surprise. It's funny because people think, oh, yeah, that, then it started to happen for you, right? And then, you know, the record was a success. You started making money. You were doing world tours and all this. No, we were on the street the next day <laughs> doing the same thing. No, nothing really happened for us until, consequently, we went out to New York. And we played at a couple different venues, but mostly Folk City. They had a, a series called Music for Dozens. But anyway, that's really what started us on our path to to fame and fortune and the beauty of desolate degradation. What was that whole experience like? Because, I mean, it didn't even seem like, you know, growing up that was anything that you were well, sometimes, like, dreaming of. Sometimes I remember it in a, in a very wonderful light and other times i think of the the hardship and some of the some of the problems that developed but for the most part it's a good memory for me and i'm proud of everything we did Mm -hmm. and you know the band goes on to this day and we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of the release of our first record that's amazing yeah yeah and so at what point did things kind of like start to calm down with the FEMS and you started focusing on other things? Like, tell me about how, like, what was that evolution like from like the FEMS to now? Well, it got to a point where I didn't want to be in the band anymore and they didn't want me in the band anymore. Okay. And at that point, I started doing my own music and touring with my own group and making records. And also, now that I had some more time on my hands, I reconnected with Theater X, and I was more of a member again. Okay. So I could I could perform as an actor more. And I also, at that time, acquired an agent down in Chicago at the Gettys Agency. So I was doing auditions in Chicago for plays, film, television. In fact, uh, one of my great interviews was with famous casting director Lynn Stallmaster. He walked me in to a room where I was auditioning for a role in The Untouchables, the Brian De Palma film. And when I walked in, Lynn Stonemaster said, and now a young actor who is very vibrant on the scene and wishes to be cast in a film, maybe your film, Brian. Here he is, Victor DiLorenzo. And so uh, I walk in and I sit down, and the person that's there as an assistant says, uh, how, how do you pronounce your last name? And I said, it's De Lorenzo, like De Palma or De Niro. And so Brian De Palma looks up from his papers like, who is this Jack? <laughs> so then I read, and he likes what I did. And as a matter of fact, I got a call back. It was for the role, I don't know if you're familiar with the film Untouchables, but there's a young reporter that's always hounding the two principals, which was Al Capone and Kevin Costner's. What was his role? He played, oh, um, just went through my head. But the famous cop down in, in Chicago who was, was on Al Capone's tail. It'll come to me. But anyway, so 
so I got called back, but then I, I didn't get the role. And I had heard later that it was because of nepotism, because one of the producer's nephews got the role yeah. or something something like this. But there you go. Yeah. So at what point did Janet and Victor cross paths, and, and what was that like? Should we tell him the real story? Yeah. I was a waitress, and I was 18 years old. So that makes that album was probably about 10 years old by then because I was pretty young when it came out. But Victor and his family sat down in someone else's section. and This was Heidemann's in yeah, Fish Bay. Yeah, Heidemann's okay. Restaurant, Whitefish Bay, 1990 or so. Yeah. The waitress came into the kitchen, and she was carrying a coffee pot, and she was all, like, hot and bothered. And she was like, oh, my God. Victor from the Violent Femmes is sitting in my section. And and I'm like, where? And I took the coffee pot from her and I went over to the table. And he said, oh, sit down, honey. Oh, you played cello? Okay, sit down, honey. She and, let me know that she played cello. Yeah, I'm not just a waitress. Yeah. I'm a cello, you know. So, yeah, my boss walked past and she really gave me the stink eye. But I gave Victor my freshly printed business cards, which I really had for about two days before I met him. And I'm like, okay, this is great. He's going to call. I'm going to, you know, play cello. With... No, I actually wanted to work specifically with you. And I get what I want. And you see, it took it took about 20 years. But I got to work with you. That's right. We're sitting here to... For all these years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how we first met. Now, he did not call. In fact, he used my teacher in some recording. Didn't you use Julie Hockman? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought, well, he's never going to call if he's using my teacher because she was so good and I could hardly play a note back then. But like I say, I never give up and don't stop trying. And Yeah. So, but then... And then fast forward. Yeah, fast forward. I was recovering from an illness, and was asked to be part of an experimental music group for about three performances. Mark Mantel, Dr. Mark, he's a composer. So we were on some projects together, and I had recently just kind of made a decision not to work with my previous drummer. Yeah, I went up to Victor, and I asked him at the end of the show, because I noticed he and I, as we were doing these performances, I was kind of looking back at him once in a while and looking for a response with the drum or, you know, with the bow. And yeah, I noticed we were playing together. And I said, well, you know, hey, I use drummers all the time as I was just starting to loop at that time and was in between drummers, which I haven't been in a while, but I certainly was then. And he said, yeah, give me a call sometime, gave me his number. And then I called and asked if he would, I think I left a message. Come and play at Circle A. Yeah. Yeah. Can you bring a, a drum and a cymbal or something and come to Circle A? And I had a different drummer there already who was playing more fundamental beats. And Victor came as like a featured drummer. But then after a few more gigs, I just kept asking, hey, and this other opportunity came up. Do you want to play that one too? And he just kept saying yes. So I thought, well, hey, are you in the band? Because if so, that's really cool. Yeah. And it has been really cool ever since. That was like, yeah, 20, 2010. 
Yeah, that was the creation of 1913 as as it is now. I'm, uh, Janet had played with other people before under the guise of 1913, but... I think I used to use the numbers, mm -hmm. and that was a, still a real new thing. Yeah. But we finally got to the point where we had always tried to have a third member, usually someone that would play a full drum set, and I would play just a smaller drum system. But it got to the point where sometimes we couldn't rely on these people that we were working with, or we just figured because of what we were getting paid for that gig, it didn't make sense to have three people. Mm -hmm. And eventually it just kind of pared itself down to the natural essence, which is just the two of us. So now we perform just as the two of us, even though sometimes when we have bigger shows, like when we did jazz in the park last year, we had other musicians come and join us for that performance. But we can perform as a two-piece, and we can also work as a three-piece. Matt Meisner plays keyboards with us sometimes. So we're flexible in that way. But if it gets right down to it, we can always just play gig with the two of us. So, okay. so we always have that safety. Sure. Yeah. What is it about each of your respective musical skills that draws the other one? Like, why does this work? Is it just a really nice complement of technical skills? Is there an element, or I guess was there an element from the beginning of just like really good chemistry? Well, I think the chemistry was there because we liked one another. And as Janet mentioned, we had performed together in different ensembles. But what I think fascinated me at the beginning was not only just the idea of drums and cello, how does that work, but then also... Janet had this looping device. So for me, it presented this challenge where, okay, we're going to play this first layer. Janet's going to set down some kind of, for lack of a better term, a bass part. And I will play to that, setting the time for her. But then she starts adding all these other layers. So if the first pass of the bass element is maybe off a little bit or something, I have to adjust to that. It's not that I can play through it or over it. I'm slave to that rhythm. I have to support that because that's what's recorded. Yeah, sorry about that. No, but I mean, that's, that's, what, <laughs> that's what I liked about it is that I got to get good at this. It's almost like learning... In a, in a recording studio, how to play with a click track or a drum machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, after a while, you just do it second nature. Now when I play with her, if something's a little off, I just adjust. Or I'll re-record it. Or she'll re-record it if it's really off. Yeah. If, if there's a glitch and it's not her fault, there's just like a weird glitch in the recording, she'll re-record it for me, and then I'll, I'll be able to play more steady with it. But I always have that choice where... I can play right with it, I can play a little behind it, or I can play a little in front of it. So it's fun for me in that, okay, this B section is coming up, and maybe I can push this a little bit, and then when it comes back to the A section again, I can pull it back. So that's, that's fun. I mean, as a musician, it's fun for me. Does it take you back to the days when you first started playing the drums and you were just like playing along with other music that you had recorded? Yeah, because you knew when you were out of sync. Yeah, yeah. You, you just knew. But I didn't have to develop a facility to play to that time because 
when I would perform live, I'd be playing in a band with other musicians who were probably at that level that I was as a player. I didn't have to worry about playing the drum machines or, or click tracks at that time because I just wasn't in that world yet. How this works for me is that I need the rhythm or else the loops aren't going to be valuable. You know, so he provides a metronome for me. And my first loop or two is is basic, usually, right? We just know how it works to build. You have to leave room for the future, so you have to leave space in the loops. But when it comes to the last note of the loop and the first note when it repeats, yeah. the timing with the foot and all those things, Victor's really been adaptable and... We've had so much fun. Even if I can't even get the loop, I try three, four times. I just give up. I'll play the song live. You know, it's happened where I just give up on it. We're like the strategic air command. We're always ready. Yeah. We kind of acknowledge after the first loop or two is put down, we kind of acknowledge, okay, this is a good one. We can keep going. We can build on this. You know, he lets me know if there's just the slightest rhythm inconsistency and and then i'm like i give him a look like i don't care because it's already recorded it's good enough for me and so then we go right so that's where I, we have a lot of experience yeah. nonverbal communication helps it work yeah you know and we've had so many years of practice of doing this now that it's second nature for us we don't have to really think about it as much we know when it's right we know when it's wrong there's no questioning it yeah, and the glitches happen. I'm I'm working with technology, and sometimes there's a ghost in the machine. There's been times where it just went blank, and I had to do a restart. Oh, Victor will tell a joke, or he'll cut yeah. some time, or do a drum solo while I'm straightening out the track. Yeah, and something new for us, too, when, when I came into the group was we started to experiment with the idea of lyrics and singing, which before I came into the group, it had been strictly instrumental. So that was another feature that I brought to the group that it took a while for Janet to get accustomed to the idea of doing that. But then that's another way of expressing ourselves now, which is really fun for us. And it certainly does bring us, in a way, closer to the audience because there's the human voice that they can identify with. Mm -hmm. Or they can hate it. But well, um, whatever, whatever. yeah, for me, like the vocal thing, it's it's a lot for me to manage because I'm playing the cello, you know. There's also I'm playing the looping pedal, and then to do something else entirely with my brain is extremely talented. But it's nice to give another look into the the world of 1913, especially in a recording sense. Well, we've done some records that are more or less instrumental or EPs, but. But lately, the things that we've been putting out, inevitably, there's at least one song that has a lyric and, and a vocal. And you're doing most of the vocals? Yeah, and Janet, Janet, Janet does some background. I do some whispering, yeah. yeah. Whispering or sometimes singing. Right. Mm -hmm. In fact, the one track that we were going to talk about features a vocal, a track called Hot Garbage. Yeah. Of... And a whisper. And a whisper. Hot <laughs> Garbage. <laughs> well, let's dive into that, like, because yeah. I was going to ask about the songwriting process and composing everything like because there's you know there's the playing together element of the duo but then there's the songwriting and the composition stuff how does that all work what's the songwriting process like and then we'll dive into what it was like specifically for for hot garbage well when i first came into the group 
Janet was the, the sole writer, and it was instrumental all the way. And I loved doing that for a while, but then, because I come from the world of song, I started to mention to her, maybe it would be nice if we had some songs with lyrics and vocals, and maybe it'll free up some energy for you, so so maybe I can take over the spotlight for a little bit and you can relax a little bit more or, or, or just work it in as a change-up to make us a little bit more appealing in different ways. So then we started writing songs together, and that was a joint process. And the song Hot Garbage was really fun for us to write because it kind of took into consideration things that were going on in our personal life. The term hot garbage is a Southern saying, and it means, oh, wow, or oh, my goodness, or like, golly gee willikers, <laughs> so hot garbage. But we put it into the world of romance. Right. But it could be like, oh, wow, the way you kiss me yeah. is so unkind. Or, yeah, well, I don't even know the word. Yeah, the way he sings. Is so yeah, he sings the words in that one mostly. Except for mm-hmm. garbage yeah. that we do together. And I always try to get Janet to project because she has a quiet voice. So sometimes I have to ask her a few times because I can't even hear and I'm sitting right next to her. So that song is an expression of, oh my goodness, but with a kind of a romance lens on it. Hot garbage, the way you treat me is so unkind, but when you kiss me, I'm feeling fine. I'm feeling fine. And okay. Yeah. So, you know, we both had our good and bad relationships and lovers and things like that. We're all adults. Mm-hmm. So. so we addressed that. It was fun in the recording of that particular piece that the end section, Janet has a beautiful piece that she plays, and it loops up into this real heavy energy cacophony. And then I come back in with the drums and it goes out with kind of an improvisation. Mm-hmm. But in the recording of it, my daughter was in town and she plays violin. And so we crafted an end section with Janet and my daughter, Perry, playing violin. And so we multi-tracked. So there was a bunch of violins and I, th- I think it was only one cello, though. But there was a bunch of violins that, that we recorded. And th- the effect of adding that violin and the cello in this part at the end gives it this very strange, untamed kind of an energy. And then when it takes off, it goes, when the drums come back in and it gets really wild, it's almost a metaphor of having a great relationship but then maybe the relationship goes sour and it turns into this horror story, or maybe it's so good that it's just so joyful. I mean, you can look at it either way. There's a release is what happens at the end. There's some kind of a release. Yeah, yeah. And before we started recording, you had mentioned that Hot Garbage is, you know, you categorize as as 1913's hit. Right. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, people really respond to it. They they really like the, the song. It's been played all over the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any notable experiences related to that song? Our friend Dr. Sushi on WMSC, he loves to play that song. And sometimes we'll just phone in with a subtle hint, 
hey, can you play hot garbage? <laughs> and he'll oblige us. He's, he's a wonderful person. And also a great supporter of, of 1913. Mm-hmm. And, and he likes that song, too. Mm-hmm. So. Well, listed on 1913's website, there are 10 releases here. Victor, have you been part of all of them? Yeah. I think so, right? Unless, did you put anything out before I... No. Nope. Okay. Yeah, they started with 4 plus 1, which would, used to be called the Infinite Prelude. Right. And then we added that song from the art museum when I fell down the stairs. Right, right. I fell down a flight of stairs before a performance. Oh, I no. barely remember the whole thing. And then went to the emergency room. Yeah. Yeah. I went to the gig and I went to the emergency room after because I just, you know, got to play. The show must go on, right? Yeah, there was a piece called Hurricane Noel. Yeah. But, um, yeah, Victor's been on all of the recordings and he has been the engineer for most of them that's awesome mm-hmm. and we produce some recordings together we've had guests on our recordings mm-hmm. so it's not strictly us on all, all the music that's recorded yeah i mean well 10 releases in 13 years is do, doing pretty good it's a lot we'll of time to keep busy yeah a lot of time spent writing and, and recording and producing what is the you know the live performance side of 1913 been like? You know, I quite frankly wasn't aware of 1913 prior to my crossing paths with Wisconsin Music Ventures and you know looking at the at the membership list. And I'm somebody who goes to like generally two or three shows a week. Like I think I went to almost 200 shows last year. You had to you had to pretty much try to avoid us then. Cause, oh, really? I mean, we were playing out every week. Yeah. So, um, and our name has been in print in so many daily and weekly publications and international magazines even, sure. you know, so we've reached a global scale, although it's pretty small. All our, all our uh, interviews, either together or, or separately, uh, we always m- mention 1913. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, our home base was working out of the jazz estate. Oh, that's right. Down the street here. But, but now they're not having music anymore, so we're, we're kind of figuring out where to, where to go now. But in some ways, we feel as though, I mean, not to harp or be a, someone that's a complainer, but it's hard for us to, to get gigs. We're, we're hoping that we can find a booking agent that would work with us. There was a couple possibilities, but they fell through. I think possibly people are scared to work with us because they don't. They also think, well, cello and drums, can that be interesting? What What is that about? Yeah. They don't realize that we've played some of the highest art events offered and also some rock shows, you know, and we play the same music. So it goes over in multiple. So uh, if anybody out there is listening and they think they can get us some gigs or would like to work with us, we're more than happy to give someone a chance. That's awesome. I, I, yeah, to your point, Victor, I think there's probably some truth to, you know, stage managers and, and venues just like not knowing what to do with 1913, you know, like how to promote it, what kind of crowd it's going to bring. And and so that like sets up the next question, like, is there a specific demographic of music lovers that tend to really enjoy like 1913? that we have going for us is when people come into the venue and they look at our setup, because it's very small. They probably figure, what what is this going to sound like, and am I even going to be able to hear it? I mean, w- what's going on there? Just like when we load in, the people working at the venues go, can we help you with getting the rest of the equipment in? And we say, that's the equipment. That, mm-hmm. That's it. Well, you're looking at it. It's a cello. It's a Lubert. 
It's a small amp, and it's a small drum system. And that's what it is, two vocal mics. But uh, what we have going for us is people see that setup. They're not sure what it's going to be about. But then when they hear us, they go, oh, that's not only very unique, but also I like it. It's yeah. nice what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. I mean, who wouldn't love, you know, 10 to 300 cellos playing in perfect rhythm and expert intonation? And good material. Janet writes some very good material. And all that comes from all these wonderful experiences, like falling downstairs and having significant loss and challenges in mining. Right. <laughs> you know, and meeting you. Yeah. <laughs> That's a challenge? Significant <laughs> challenge in my life, yes. Well, like you had mentioned, so like it's been challenging to get gigs, you know, because of the reasons that you mentioned. Have there been other challenges that either 1913 or either of you respectively have like faced in the industry that have taught you a particular lesson or anything like that. I mean, you both have very, you know, long-standing music careers at this point and the music industry isn't always necessarily kind to, to artists. Mm -hmm. So are there any that stand out that was like, Oh man, that experience just taught me a whole bunch about how to do that the right way. We'd like to have a sound person to help, with that aspect of it. But, you know, Victor and I have just, we've played so many performances, you know, I guess making sure that we have what we need. There's been a couple of shows where I, I was a little distracted and I, I came to the shows without my power cord for my amplifier, you know, so I learned always double check, even if I know for sure something's in my bag, you know, it's just logistical things like that. But we've had some really amazing performances and no bad lessons. No? No. Not really. We, we've been lucky in that regard. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things, but I don't really want to bring them up. Okay. But most of all, our experience has been wonderful. Yeah. I, I think that, that people, once they discover the band, we become one of their favorite groups because we are so unique. And we have that going for us and also... We love to perform, and I think people like to see that on stage, people having fun. So it's not something super serious or people putting on affectations that it is serious. I mean, we like to laugh just as much as the next person. But one of our adages that, that I like to think of for our performances that you give people a little bit of heaven and you give them a little bit of hell. Oh, okay. I haven't heard that before. I like that. I think the biggest challenge in all these years was having to delete about 30 performances that we had lined up, yeah. and they were on my website, the 1913.com, spelled out. And one by one, all these calls in some venues didn't even call to tell me we were canceled due to the COVID-19 safer at home order. So those were tough, too. You know, our last performance before that was up in Sturgeon Bay, and they were afraid the musicians from Milwaukee were going to bring them COVID, for, you know, and then the world shut down. Yeah, we had 30 performances, and we've been operating at a deficit since we started performing again about a year ago. We didn't do much internet performing because we weren't even supposed to be at each other's houses, you know. We were breaking the rules by like hanging out and you know, having fun and maybe doing some recording. We're, we're still operating at a deficit and would love to make up for those performances and get some more on the books. Both of us promote 
whatever we're working on, we're promoting all the time. And we've gotten thanks from venues like, wow. And one of the reasons why we hired you in 1913 is because we saw how much publicity you do to promote the events. So, I was just going to say that uh, one of our favorite streaming shows, I mean, we've only done one, right? That you know of. Yeah, that we know of. We've done, I mean, you, you've certainly done some, but, but aren't... No, you've done some Instagrams with me and... Oh, that's right. Well, And then the WMSE. Right, right. But but I'm, I'm thinking in particular the one that I really enjoyed, well, we both enjoyed, was this past New Year's Eve. We, we played upstairs here and did a live streaming show, and that, that was really fun. And we sounded really good. And the look of it and the sound quality, we we're very happy. It really turned out well. And that was a gift to the people that like us. Right. We didn't get a, a dime. You know? Right. I was billing it as, here's something to do before you do what you have to do tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit of heaven for the hell that will come later. <laughs> so we're talking a little bit more now about kind of the business aspect, the promotion, the booking. Right. You know, do you guys tag team that? Does one of you handle that more than the other? Do you enjoy it? We just scramble. We just try and find gigs, but it's hard. Then that's why I'm saying that I, I wish there was some sympathetic booking agent person or, or just a person that loves music that would want to try and help us. But for the most part, we, we do the booking, even though we're coming out of, of course, the pandemic. And so we haven't dove in as much as far as trying to really find gigs because we've been busy with other things, too. So, so now we're starting to turn our attention to that again. Because I think on the books now, what we only have three shows right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to hopefully find some more, or maybe we'll find a booking agent. That'll help Would you, us. hey, Victor, would you like a booking agent? Yeah, you know, I'd love to have a booking agent. <laughs> this is Victor DiLorenzo. <laughs> I think they would, they would book us, right? From 1913. <laughs> Victor, I have to ask, and you can completely, you know, push this away, but... How often does it happen that your work with the FEMS comes up? And do you feel that that has helped put you at an advantage post-FEMS or a disadvantage post-FEMS? And also, Janet, how do you experience that, you know? Can I go first? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, oh, gosh, where do I start? Anywhere you want. Sometimes people talk to me because they're too nervous to talk to him. (laughs) Maybe they were, yeah, they try to pursue a friendship with me, but they really, you know, maybe only like me because I work with Victor. That has happened. The other thing is that, you know, being a woman in in the industry and being a nonstop marketing engine, I have had my phone number available to the general public for 20 some years and on hundreds of business cards and thousands, actually. And... Once in a while, the wrong type of guy gets a hold of my phone number and starts sending me intimate pictures of himself. And this has happened more than once. But both Victor and Brian Ritchie have come to my defense and told guys to stop, to stop sending me those pictures and things like that. So in a lot of ways, it doesn't hurt to have Victor in 1913, but it doesn't necessarily give us all the advantage that some people might think mm-hmm. okay we work very hard we craft this gorgeous music we've earned all our performances 
So in some ways, it could backfire on us because some people might think like, oh, 1913, they get all the best gigs in town, which is true. But I feel like we've really earned it. <laughs> no, we don't now, get all the best gigs. We have had some amazing we've had some really good gigs, but we've earned them. But hey. We went after the gigs. Who's the violent femme now? Oh. Right. That's right. Yeah. I always say that, you know, there's there's uh, one violent femme in our group and it's not me. But I'd have to say sometimes the association with the femmes works to our advantage and other times I think maybe it hurts us because not everybody loves the violent femmes. And sometimes what I get is when people meet me and they spend some time with me, they say, well, you're very nice. And I said, well, why are you saying that? He said, well, I've had some experiences with the other two guys, and they're not very nice. And I said, well, you know, that depends on whatever, okay. what's going on with those particular people that day, what they had for lunch, did they have a fight with their wife, I mean, whatever. But normally, I think I'm regarded as the person that's most approachable in Violent Femmes, or at least in Violent Femmes when I was in the group. So for better or for worse, I'm, I'm kind of tagged with that. And I think sometimes maybe I'm kind of just lopped in with the perception that those guys are jerks. Mm. You know, so whatever. And certainly s some people have had bad experiences with the other two guys, and they've had good experiences with me. You know, so... Other than like, you know, the shows and obviously the, you know, the, the, the chance here to have the, the music in a, in a film, like what, what's on the horizon? What are, what are Janet and Victor looking forward to? Making some more music. Sure. Yeah. Continuing recording, uh, branching out, being able to play music in other parts of the country other than just the Midwest. We'd like to get in on the festival circuit and play some great big shows, and also experiment more with the idea of trying to get other producers and directors interested in our music so we can work more in the world of film or mm -hmm. television. That would be, I think, a joy for us because we love recording and we like collaborating with other people. And we like the inter-arts. Oh. Sure. We're both involved in other things, and, and I, I do paintings. Oh, wow, this, this is your work? Yeah. And, this is awesome. And Janet does uh, a lot of work in photography. It's fun to try and stretch out and learn different things and how it reflects back on 1913 as far as, say, if we're, if we're putting together a record that we want to release, what about artwork for the record? Well, we have that covered between the two of us. If we have to write something, an article or something, we're both very gifted writers, I think. So it's nice to be able to scratch all these different itches that we have. I like that when someone hired us to play for our pairing with, was it whiskey? Yeah. Yeah. So not just a wine tasting, which would be a little bit more, I don't know, expected. Yeah, but we played for a whiskey pairing. It was kind of cool. You know, so we're open to new ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the reasons why we're working with Allison from Wisconsin Music Ventures is because mm -hmm. Victor just was really impressed by how she can put interesting musicians in interesting places. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this upcoming performance is something we've been looking forward to for 
many months, and I'm really looking forward to just playing in that cool old firehouse um, that was just a baby when my cello was made, or or vice versa. Is it from the 20s? My cello might be just slightly older than that building. They might resonate really well together because, like, hey, we're from the 1900s together. And the reason why we're called 1913 is because Janet's cello was developed in Transylvania in 1913. So that's, there you go. How did you get your hands on a cello of that age from Transylvania? It came straight with a teacher that was from there. And that teacher was really important to my technique because I was actually, I was at the point of stopping because it hurt to play. I couldn't hold my bow. I was questioning everything didn't know how to put my fingers down. This was when I was about 18 also, 19. And this cello player from Romania came and brought that cello. And I started really wanting to play the cello, that particular cello. And he used to tease me, you'll never get it, you'll never touch it. And I I thought, well, someday it'll be mine. And then several years later, his quartet got a matching set of instruments made for them. And he said, I can't afford my new instrument unless I sell this 1913 cello. So, yeah, then I had to put about seven grand into it to just get it playable for me. But it was an old instrument with outdated, you know, they just had different dimensions back then. And Let's see, isn't it a particular size? It's a small size cello. It's a deep cello, but small. And the wide grain of the wood really makes it loud. It's quite loud. And yeah, since it's a small size cello, my left hand doesn't have to stretch. But yeah, that teacher ended up making it so I could continue to play cello because I was honestly dropping my ball. I was doing so many things incorrectly. And that's my own fault. Or, you know, like I said, I didn't practice between my lessons. My teachers maybe before that didn't really care to fix something that I was complaining about or, oh, that shouldn't hurt. Well, why was it hurting? It's a big instrument and it can actually damage you. If it, like the drums, if you don't play the drums right. Both of our instruments demand technique. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you're really serious about it, for me too, getting older, I'm looking into different grips Mm -hmm. and how to utilize the stick and the uh, indefinite bounce. So that's just something to keep up with. I'm watching clips on YouTube with different teachers all the time just to pick up different tips. Yeah, still learning. Sure. Yeah, that's great. I'd say 1913 is still learning. Right. Come and learn with us. I even have a new pedal to, to work on that doesn't just play back, but I play into it. It randomizes and distorts things. So every time it loops, yeah, every time it loops, it's going to be a surprise. So we got to work that into the rig somehow. Pretty soon, the drums and the cello will just be playing themselves. And we'll just be watching or we'll be tied up. (laughs) Well, this has been a great conversation, but I don't want to end before asking the last question. What is the most important thing that you want listeners to know about 1913 or about you as individual musicians or just as human beings after hearing each of your respective stories and then the story of 1913? What's the most important thing you want listeners to take away? Well, for me, I like to welcome the audience into a new adventure. So if you can come 
to our concert with an open mind, I think you'll come away with some knowledge that you didn't have when you first came into the venue. Because what we're trying to put across is not only beautiful music, but our personalities and how they exist inside the music. So if you have a feeling as though you got to know us a little bit during the course of the concert, then we've succeeded in doing what we want to do. Perfect. That's awesome. I just want people to know that we spell out the words 1913. <laughs> Don't use the number. Don't reduce us to four little numerals on a page. We spell it out, you know, even informally. <laughs> no, really, it's not 1912 and it's not 1914. It's 1913. Right. That's all. Well, that's all. Well, Janet and Victor, this has been great. Thank you so much for inviting me into the studio. Nick, it was so nice having a wonderful conversation with you. Thanks, Nan.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Newmeyer. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.